Hello and welcome to this Mostly Weather episode, which today is all about space weather. Everything that comes from the sun towards us here on Earth. I'm Penny Tranter and today here with me are two lovely colleagues from the Met Office. We have Barbara and Curran. Hello there, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. And also Mark Gibbs. Hi Penny. It's lovely to have you both here today. I wondered if you could just both give us a little bit of an outline as what you do relating to space weather here in the Met Office. Mark, if I start with you. Okay, so I'm the head of space weather. So I've been around from the start of the space weather programme in the Met Office, which kicked off at the tail end of 2010. So I've been on quite an exciting adventure in those, well, what, 10 years nearly now. So you are our resident expert here in the Met Office, I think it's quite safe to say. Yeah, I guess so, yes. And how about you, Barbie? I uh, joined the Space Weather team in the middle of last year as the project manager, and the areas that I'm responsible for are the relationships with ESA, particularly with regards to the expert service centres that look at heliospheric, ionospheric, geomagnetic and solar issues that emanate from the sun. Wow. Just hearing all those different words, I'm not going to ask you to explain them all, but I was just going to ask you, ESA, what does that stand for? Oh, I'm sorry, that's the European Space Agency. They are a conglomeration or a partnership of national space centres throughout Europe. Wow. So this is a big deal then, isn't it? So I would like to ask you both, I mean, why should we be concerned about the impact of a solar superstorm affecting the Earth? So space weather sits on the UK's National Risk Register. It's there's a medium-high risk. So it originally went on in 2011, and that essentially was the reason for the creation of the space weather capability here at the Met Office. So it all dates back to that. So people can probably cast their minds back to the volcanic ash event of 2010, when, to a certain extent, I think government was caught out. So as a result of that, government looked a lot more scientifically and objectively at the risk and space weather was one of those things that they recognised was a low probability but potentially high impact event. And um, in 2011, it went on to the National Risk Register. And that's really driven the activity in the UK. So it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because since 2011, I don't think we've had a severe space weather event affecting the UK. Am I right in that? You're absolutely right. Space weather goes through cycles. So there's a 11-year solar cycle. So since 2011, we've been through a solar maxima where you'd expect sort of highest frequency of events and we're pretty close to solar minimum now. But it's been what I would describe an abnormal solar cycle in that there hasn't been any significant events. If you look back at you know, the last sort of 10 or more solar cycles, you know, we've always had big events during it. Some of them, by big, I mean big from a space weather perspective, not necessarily big from a, an impact perspective and we've had really only modest space weather events this solar cycle so it's been abnormal. How do we actually measure what comes off the sun towards us? We're far more reliant on satellites and spacecraft than terrestrial weather so a lot of the imagery we get come from spacecraft. Majority of them come from a thing called Solar Dynamics Observatory which is in geostationary orbit but sun synchronous so you can always see the sun and that gives us a range of different coloured images which tell us more about the solar atmosphere. But we also have deep space missions as well, which makes space weather observations very expensive. 
And can we actually see any of this on the Met Office website? Yeah, if you go onto uh, the Met Office website and look under Specialist Forecasts, the section there for space weather, so you can see today's forecast, you can see Aurora predictions, and you can see some of the images that our forecasters use as well. You see some of those images when you go into the op centre where the space weather area is. Yeah, that, that's it. So we've got screens full of different images which are telling our forecasters different things. Yeah, I think it's one of the, uh, the most eye-grabbing bit of the op centre. So how are we aware of the risks from severe space weather? I mean, we've obviously talked a little bit about the work of the Met Office, but is there other organisations that we work with? Yeah, we work with a lot of organisations. I guess the awareness goes back to history. Yeah, so we've seen a number of historical events. And the most notable one of those is the Carrington event in 1859. So Cabinet Office leads on the creation of the National Risk Register and they commissioned the Royal Academy of Engineering to do a study basically to assess if the Carrington event was to occur again today, which is a large event we've seen in recent history, what would be the impact on modern day technology? And that really is almost like the Bible we use in terms of what the impacts are going to be. So talking about impacts, what are the impacts that we can expect? Let's start with the nice side of space weather, and that's the aurora. So the aurora, the northern lights, and the same in the southern hemisphere, are the physical manifestation of space weather. So I think it's on everybody's bucket list. It's only on my bucket list mm. to, to go and see it again. I have seen it once. I haven't seen it at all. Well, I saw it in Reading, of, of all places. Oh, wow. In what I now know was the um, 1989 event. So you know, seeing it so far south in the UK, particularly in a major southern conurbation, is extremely unusual. Yes. So the 1989 event was probably the order of about one in 30 or one in 50 year event, so quite a rare event. Well, of course, Barbie, we're going to see the European Space Weather Week in November, which I know you're very much involved in. But just out of interest, have you seen an aurora borealis? Not that I can remember, although I have a slight something from my childhood, but I live in Northern Ireland and we tend to have very, very late nights. They don't get dark early, so I could have seen one when I was young, but I don't know if I'm imagining it or if I really remember it. Yeah, so there's two people here that I'm not sure they've seen one, Mark. So, I mean, how is it caused? So an aurora is essentially caused by magnetic energy coming in from the sun. So... We get this uh, burst of plasma off, off the sun, which we call a coronal mass ejection. And it does what the name says. You know, it's an ejection of mass from the sun's corona. Embedded in that is a bit of the local magnetic field. And we don't know what the orientation of that magnetic field is. But these CMEs typically take three to five days to travel the sun to Earth distance. Because it, you know, it's a long way. It's 93 million miles. The fastest on record has been about 14 and a half hours. Yeah, the Carrington event was well under 24 hours. And in general, it's the faster ones that we worry about the most because, you know, essentially they come in with more momentum and hit Earth's magnetic field with more momentum. But the key really is which way around the magnetic polarity is within this plasma cloud, i.e., is it the same way as Earth's magnetic field, in which case, like two bar magnets, they repel each other, so therefore a lot of the energy passes around the Earth, or if it comes in the opposite way up, i.e. effectively with south at the top and north at the bottom, so the opposite way to Earth's magnetic field, then like two bar magnets, the magnetic fields attract each other and combine, and we get magnetic energy entering the Earth's magnetic field, essentially. And that gives you the aurora. Now, the position of the aurora essentially tells you how strong an event is, how strong a storm is. So the further south it comes, 
the stronger it is. So in the Carrington event, which is the reasonable worst case scenario which we use, the aurora was seen into southern Europe, into the Caribbean. There's even talk about it being seen in Mexico. So for it to be seen that far south, when normally you'd only see it in some of the Scandinavian countries, perhaps in the Shetlands and northern parts of Scotland, shows you just how powerful the storm was. Okay, that, that is amazing. Okay, so as you say, that's the nice part of space weather. What are the not-so-nice parts? Well, as I suggested with the Royal Academy of Engineering report, it impacts our modern technology and the technology we rely on you know, just go about our day-to-day lives. I think the thing that most people are concerned about is the potential impact on the power grid. We in the UK are slightly less worried about that because we're less vulnerable just because of the UK's location and also the way the UK grid is actually engineered makes us much more resilient than, say, North America. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so uh, back in 1989, there's the famous Quebec storm when one of these geomagnetic storms came in and the whole province of Quebec in Canada lost power. So, so that's one area where space weather can affect us. It can affect satellites, so it can cause basically random upsets on board. It can damage the solar rays, so you know, there's likely to be some loss of um, space-based services which most of us don't realise we're using, but we use a lot of the time. It's just hidden. So, for example? Um, so, SATCOM is used. Um, you know, we, we're all used to using GPS with our sat-navs. Oh, you know, right, go- okay. Google Maps and that on our phones, Apple mm-hmm. Maps, whichever we choose to use. So, as well as the satellite's been affected, the bit of the atmosphere between the spacecraft and the ground, what we call the ionosphere, can be basically become very disturbed, which means that a lot of the signals we're trying to pass through just can't get through. So that's particularly the case with GPS. We may have sort of three days without GPS. Gosh, can Um, you imagine a world like without uh, GPS for three days? Yeah, absolutely. And that becomes a generational thing. You know, we still have a roadmap in our car. I can still read maps. (laughs) Um, You know, but a lot of, you know, my kids' generation, they don't know how to read maps. Yeah, so that could be a big issue. But what's worse is if we don't know we've lost GPS as happened in the TV show Cobra, which aired last week, I think, for the first time, when we saw the aircraft that had lost their navigation capability, but they didn't know to start off with. They didn't know they were lost. And that's the big thing that's worrying. So that was the sky drama, wasn't it, Cobra, Barbie? Can you give us a little bit of the the background to it? It's actually a drama about civil unrest and about the woes of a prime minister played by Robert Carlyle. But the backdrop for the unrest is a space weather event. The show opens with the head of the Civil Contingency Service and the chief scientific officer um, reporting that they are watching some coronal mass ejections and they're watching the sunspots on the sun and they're watching for any coronal mass ejections coming out and we watch this unfold as they then let the prime minister know that there has been uh, an x5 i think it was wasn't it mark which wow. is coming That's at us big coming at us really fast and they let the prime minister know and he then calls cobra and then we see the dramatization of what happens when something happens in this country we first of all have what's called sage which is the scientific advisors to government in emergencies where the chief 
scientific officer in this specific area, briefs and brings in expertise to talk about, in this case, space weather. And then a decision is made about whether COBRA, which is the Cabinet Office Briefing Room A, and they all go in and they all sit down and talk about how they're going to deal with it. And on this occasion, it is a drama, so it was the extremes that could happen. But in terms of the science, it was a fairly realistic and they referred to the Met Office on several occasions. But I defer to Mark because he's the expert about how really scientifically uh, well it was done. <laughs> I don't know, Mark, what do you think? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with Barbie. You know, it was well done scientifically. Yeah, there was a few minor things I would disagree with, but they're minor things. You know, like Barbie mentioned, an X5, we wouldn't get particularly excited about an X5. Our escalation point is X10. But having said that, the size of solar flare, and we use this X scale to describe the size of solar flares, isn't necessarily related to the spin direction of a CME. So X5 wouldn't be particularly notable. The other thing is the um, some of the impacts are very much more at the dramatic end than the, if you like, the documentary end of the scale. Whilst we would expect civil aviation to have some issues, probably not to scale we've actually seen on the programme. But yeah, in the round, it was pretty good. One of the things that the drama brought out was the uncertainty that is around space weather. It's a new science and we are learning as we go along. And one of the things we do know is that, uh, as Mark talked about earlier, the polarity, whether it's, I think in the, in the show they referred to it as hot south or frozen north. If it comes in from the south, it's bad. And the plasma has to travel 93 million miles, but we don't actually know until it reaches a point called Lagrange 1. There are Spots around the sun that are identified as L1, L2, etc. And L1 is the first point that we understand what the polarity is. And in the show, it showed the chief scientific officer counting down and it's coming in from the Met Office now. It's coming. Oh, it's hot south. We've got a problem. Mm. But you don't get that notification until about half an hour before it hits. And under normal circumstances, it takes a couple of days to travel the 93 million miles. But in the Carrington event, it's reckoned that it only took about 17.5 hours to get here. And the reason that was, was because there was a coronal mass ejection just before it that cleared the way and made it come faster. And Mark said earlier when we were talking before the show that we always look for the second one now. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Second fast one is what we worry about. And we keep referring to the Carrington event in 1859, don't we? So I think maybe if we just do a quick summary of that and then we can look a little bit more about what the Met Office Space Weather Centre does. Absolutely. So as you said, the Carrington event occurred in 1859, named after a British astronomer, Sir Richard Carrington. He had been observing the sun and it was the first time he was able to link something occurring on the sun, which was a he saw a bright flash on the sun, and then a number of hours later, we then started seeing the aurora at Earth, and he linked the two. So that really was what we now know as space weather. The bright flash he saw on the sun was actually a sort of flare, which released a coronal mass ejection, and then the ensuing geomagnetic storm. Now, of course, technology back in 1859 was a bit different to the technology yeah. today. So it really was the telegraphic system. 
We know there's very contemporary reports. Some of them are part myth, but I think they describe the situation quite well. You know, people were seeing sparks from some of the telegraphic wires. There were some reports of some of the wooden huts, housing equipment sort of burning down. They could operate the system better with the batteries disconnected than with the batteries connected. And that's because you're getting an induced current in the long cables. And also I've heard that because they used Morse keys, which basically work on making and breaking a magnetic connection, that the current was so strong that they couldn't actually break the connection. They were stuck down. But as I said, you know, that's think of the order about a one in 100 year event. And that's what we use today as our reasonable worst case scenario and what the Royal Academy of Engineering used for their case study. So moving on to 2019 then, and um, £20 million of funding was announced to upgrade the UK's resilience to space weather events by the Prime Minister at the UN General Assembly. And that funding will go into research projects which will directly help improve the ability of the Met Office to predict space weather events so as to reduce their potential impact. Let's hear a little bit more about the Met Office Space Weather Centre. It's here in HQ in Exeter. But actually, we don't just work in isolation, do we? We're working with several partners across the globe. Absolutely. We work with a multitude of partners. Space weather is an issue where our forecast skill and our scientific capability is very different to terrestrial weather. The first question we ask ourselves when something occurs on the sun is, is it going to hit the Earth? We're not here talking about, you know, is this shower going to affect one side of London or the other side of London? We're doing terrestrial meteorology. We work at a planetary scale. So the Met Office Space Weather Operations Centre, MOSWOC as, it, as it's known, was formally stood up on a 24-7 basis back in 2014. We had provided some primitive services in 2012 to support the Olympics. That was, we were approaching the solar maximum then. There was a concern about there being potentially a big space weather event. But MOSWOC formally stood up in 2014. And we're one of three centres globally, which is manned 24-7 by expert space weather forecasters. If you go into Google and Google space weather forecast, you'll find lots of information out there, lots of model output. But there are only three centres which are manned round the clock, monitoring the sun and alerting people as necessary. So there's MOSWOC, obviously, here in the Met Office. There's the NOAA Space Weather Prediction Centre in the US. And there's also the US Air Force 557th Weather Wing, also in the US. So outside the United States, the UK is the only country with one of these fully manned centres. So that's all really very interesting, Mark. So we work very, very closely then with those two other centres in the US. I'm assuming that because time is of the essence, communications have got to be really on it. And then also, how do we communicate that to all the people around the world who must be interested in a severe space weather event? Absolutely right. We're in constant contact with the other two centres trying to make sure that the forecast story is consistent because you're absolutely right, we then collectively need to communicate that message out and it's important we do our best to make sure we're putting out a consistent message. So we have a whole whole range of users, as do the Americans, both in the UK and overseas. The primary method is email, but certainly key customers that would include uh, some of the government departments, people like National Grid, will actually have telephone conversations with them to make sure they really understand the risk. And, yeah, I talked about the accuracy of space weather and also the 
scientific skill, it's very, very different to terrestrial weather. And therefore, there's a lot of human input. We're not as reliant on models. So it's important we're having these conversations with the other centres so we're consistent. But we can't give very precise forecasts to some of the users. That's why some of it has to be conversations. It's about them understanding degrees of risk so they can make the right decisions to uh, take whatever mitigating action they need to. And you have a lot of technical language, don't you, as well? So do they have a, like, a basic understanding of space weather? So, for example, solar maximum, solar minimum, CMEs, all these kind of words that we've been using. So we support a whole range of users. So those that are going to be most impacted by space weather, we generally talk to them all the time. So they understand the language we use in space weather. So we have a common language. We also recognise we do need to speak in a much more straightforward language because we can get conversations full of techno babble. We need to actually uh, describe it in a way which the layperson can understand. So we try and span both those as best we can. So for a layperson then, are you able to give us a quick summary of what a solar maximum and a solar minimum are? Solar maxima is, is very simply when there's the maximum number of sunspots on the sun. So every day... There are observers of the sun who are looking at the number of sunspots which occur in the sun. And sunspots are the regions which generate space weather, essentially, things like CMEs and that. So it's a simple tally on a daily basis. So we have this 11-year cycle, which is all due to the change in magnetic field in the sun. So the sun, like the Earth, is what we call a magnetic dipole. So north at one pole and south at the other pole. Unlike the Earth, which takes millennia for the poles to flip, the sun actually flips its poles every 11 years, and that gives rise to the solar cycle. So we have this solar maxima, where you see the greatest number of sunspots and therefore the highest frequency of solar events, and solar minima, which we are more or less in now, you only actually know you've actually reached minima when it actually starts rising up the other side. So we're there or thereabouts, but we won't know until after the event. And that's when you get the least number of sunspots and the lowest frequency. However, it only takes one sunspot to produce a Carrington event. I was just going to say, it's like weather forecasting, isn't it? You can yes. never, <laughs> never can disregard. Never say never. Never exactly. Say never. exactly. Well, I mean, Wildmark, I mean, it's just fascinating, isn't it, um, hearing you talk about space weather and the fact that, you know, our space weather centre is one of three in the world. So we're obviously leading on the world stage and also... In November, Barbie, we're going to be leading in terms of conferences, aren't we? Yeah, European Space Weather Week takes place in Glasgow in Scotland from the 2nd to the 6th of November 2020. European Space Weather Week started in 2004, so it's 16 years old. This is the 17th year. The first two years it was held in the Netherlands and the purpose behind it was to try and understand what applications and what science was out there and how it could be used by everybody who was in a space weather alerting type role Mm -hmm. and also to develop models for monitoring the various different elements that can come at us from the sun. They also wanted to develop a community. So 2004, 2005 were both in the Netherlands. 2005 was focused on trying to get something that they called SWENET, which was the space weather network together. And they started to work on that. And then it moved in its third year to 
Belgium, where it was held for the next 14 years. So we've taken it on for the 17th European Space Weather Week. Uh, we're taking it to Glasgow, and Glasgow was the European city of culture in 1990, and it is well experienced in handling big events. They did the 2014 Commonwealth Games, and they also did the 2018 European Championships. So we're going to a team of people up there at the Glasgow Conference Bureau who are very experienced at delivering things like this. So it's fantastic. We're bringing together, the, it sounds like the whole community, the scientists, the forecasters, the users. Do we actually have a theme for this particular conference? We are bringing all those people together. Um, one of the things that I spoke about with one of our scientific colleagues last week when I was in Glasgow was the need to start thinking more and more and more about um, machine learning. One of the things we want to do is we want to introduce Glasgow and Scottish culture to our space weather colleagues from around the globe. And that's very important to us. We have picked this up at a time when there are perceived problems, which are we're in the middle of Brexit. Um, we're also taking this event away from Belgium for the first time in 14 years. And so that can sometimes lead to some mis conceptions about what's going on here are we turning our backs and so it's vitally important for us to put our arms around each other's shoulders in the industry and say it doesn't really matter about politics it doesn't really matter about geography we're all here for the same passion the same reason the same everything so that's one of the big things for me exactly just like weather and climate space weather knows no boundaries whatsoever so just very briefly what is the next step for space weather? I think there's some couple of really exciting things on the horizon. You know, we briefly mentioned um, Swimmer uh, a few minutes ago. So from a Metalist perspective, that's really important because MozWOC was set up um, when operational in 2014. And what we haven't had is a UK-focused targeted research programme to pull new capability through from academia into operations. Swimmer is all about doing that. So I'm going to stop you there, Mark. Swimmer. What does that acronym mean? So Swimmer stands for Space Weather Innovation Monitoring, Modelling and Risk. Thank you very I think much I've got indeed. all the letters covered there. <laughs> Fundamentally, it's about transitioning either new capability or existing capability into operations in MozWOC. So that, in three, four years' time, should see an improvement in both the skill of some of the forecasts we provide, but also a wider range of, of forecasts. The other thing which is on the horizon, we're working hard on at the moment with the European Space Agency, and that is a dedicated space weather mission to one of these Lagrange points that Barbie was talking about. So this is to the Lagrange 5 position. Where is that exactly? So that is, if you're looking at the sun from Earth, it's over to the left. So it forms an equilateral triangle between L5, the Sun, Earth, and back to L5. So, so L5 is 93 million miles away from the Earth and also from the Sun. We can view the what we call Sun-Earth line. So we can view these CMEs which launch from the Sun are headed towards the Earth. So one of the issues we have is if we only can see them from the Earth, it's very difficult to work out how fast they're coming. It's a bit like somebody kicks a football towards you. You can see it's going to hit you in the face, but you're not sure what's the right moment to duck. If you watch it from the side, you know when to duck, but you don't know where it's going to hit you or just miss you. 
if you've got both views, you know both, so you know precisely where it's going to hit you and when to duck to miss it. And so by having instrumentation at L5 and um, instrumentation at L1 that Barbara is describing gives us the best possible ability to predict the speed of these CMEs because they can take five days or they can be as fast as 14 and a half hours and fundamentally there's a big difference in how you respond to those. So I've got one final question because I can imagine some of our listeners might be interested to know how do I become a severe space weather forecaster? What background do I have to have? You need to be good at maths and physics. So we don't recruit space weather forecasters. We take weather forecasters and then train them in space weather. So all our space weather forecasters are all very competent terrestrial weather forecasters. So they've learnt their trade through weather forecasting, then we provide the additional training. And even today, our forecasters will one day come in and do a terrestrial weather forecasting shift, and the next day they'll come and do a space weather shift. The benefit of that is that although we only have one forecaster on duty dedicated to space weather, there's always at least one other and often several other trained space weather forecasters in the op centre. So if we see the next Carrington event, we immediately have many minds we can bring to the problem whilst we're calling additional staff in. So if you want to be a space weather forecaster, look out for recruitment for weather forecasters, become a really good weather forecaster, and then we'll train you in space weather as well. Really, really finally, if we did have another Carrington event, what would your role be? as our expert in space weather? What I would be doing, and perhaps one of these slight differences what we saw in portraying COBRA is I would actually be sat in COBRA alongside the government chief scientific advisor. So instead of him saying, I've just received an update from the Met Office, I would be there as a technical advisor in COBRA advising the politicians. So that was a really, really interesting journey into well, I'm going to say quite deep space, really. I'd really like to thank our two contributors today, Mark Gibbs. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And also to Barbara Ann Curran. <laughs> thank you. That was great. <laughs> so on Mostly Weather, we are going to be revisiting space weather nearer the European Space Weather Week in November 2020. But for now, that's it from Mostly Weather. I'm Penny Tranter. And today's producer was Claire Nazir. Mostly Weather is a podcast by the UK Met Office.